History Uncensored. Welcome. Join me on this journey, pestilence, disease, and foul smells. Some might think this episode is going to get gross. I don't really think it's gross. I think it's going to be pretty cool. If you haven't figured out by the title of the episode, we are going to be talking about miasmas or miasms or the history of the miasma theory. If you don't know what the fuck I'm talking about, don't worry. I'm about to tell you how people got sick in the old days. And by the old days, I mean like pre middle of the 19th century. Here's an example of what may have happened in, let's say, medieval Europe. Random concerned citizen doesn't feel so good. He goes to, you know, a nearby uh, priestly guy, somebody that looks like he might be able to help him with his humors. Random concerned citizen says, I don't feel so good. The priestly dude responds. Oh, man, you got some demons in your blood. We should probably let it out. That sounds kind of dangerous. Is it safe? Priestly guy responds, so you think it's safe to have demons in your blood? You're probably right. Get that blood out. I'm hot as a prostitute's ass in hell. Priestly guy, how did you know about... I need some leech demon vessels over here. A knife and a hand drill. Concerned citizen, hand drill? Yeah, you don't look great. Those demons in your blood might already be in your head. That is an obvious, true to the fact statement of something that actually happened at some point in the past, in the past even with all of the modern language and stuff. Just spot fucking on. But throughout the centuries, I guess now I should explain we're going to get into real history, not my made up stuff. Throughout centuries, a millennia even, philosophers and scientists tried to explain the way of infectious diseases and their transmission. Was it witchcraft? Demons? Gods? Comets? Earthquakes? These were really good ideas. And they were followed by uh, tangible scientific ones like the miasma theory. It's hard to think of it as scientific, but it's surrounded. The history of the miasma theory is surrounded by scientific speech by people dead 2,000 plus years. And then we had the contagious theory in the spontaneous generation theory, and finally germ theory, until the evolution of microbiology in the 19th and 20th centuries. Very primitive ideas about contagiousness dealt with the general notion of transmission through contact. Me touching you, me sucking on your face, you sucking on my face, me sneezing into your mouth. Epidemics were probably rare in small primitive tribes, in the Mesozoic, Paleolithic, a long time ago. But they 
became terrifying events once our population density increased enough to produce and sustain them, you know, like once agriculture and slavery took hold. At that time, people's ignorance led to magical or religious explanations of disease. It was sent by the gods as punishment for their sins. You didn't practice your magic good enough, you bastards. Characteristically, in ancient Persia, we see an emphasis on demonology. The disease is caused by evil spirits and must be controlled by exorcism. There's even a cult, the cult of Nurgle, a demon portrayed in hymns and myths as a god of war, fever, and pestilence. And then we get to the 6th century BC. The pre-Socratic philosophers Pythagoras, Alcmaeon, and Empedocles inaugurated the period in science where the environment was understood to play a vital role in health and wellness. A century later, we were introduced to airs, waters, and places of the Hippocratic text, correlated a variety of symptoms and diseases with geographical and meteorological conditions. For example, malaria uh, was believed to be due to the effect of seasonal changes on stagnant water or marshy places. I mean, that's kind of true, right? It's mosquitoes, but because it's marshy and wet and female mosquitoes are assholes, you, you get malaria. Such concepts survived and in time consolidated in the belief that a pathological state of the atmosphere is associated with infectious diseases. This line of thinking developed further into the miasma theory of contagion. Remember, the whole reason we're here. Air became contaminated with miasmas or miasms, poisonous vapors produced by putrefying organic matter, and a person could become infected with miasmas, invaded the body, and disturbed its vital functions, you know, like trying to live. Who needs demons when you have a much cooler word like miasma? Also, do you know how many like self-published books are named miasma? Probably not. Why would you? That would be fucking stupid. But I can tell you, there are many. Here is the passage from the treatise Nature of Man, where the contrast between the two categories of disease and the two types of causes is asserted with really good clarity. Diseases come either from regimen, what you're doing every day, or from the air that we breathe in to live. Right? Because they do. They, you, you're. Even these people way long ago, they're like, oh, yeah, that, that's breathing. I'm breathing in the, the air. It's, it's important to me, obviously, somehow. So it's either what you're doing in the day-to-day -day that's making you sick. Or maybe better yet, like what, you know, what's in the air, what you're smelling. Makes sense. When I breathe those bad smells in, I, I mean, I get sick. Uh, the, the actual quote from um, the line is this. We must attribute this to the most common cause, to that which we all use the most. This is what we breathe. And then Galen, he's a smart bastard, after Hippocrates. The constitutions of the air that surrounds us, when they are quite warm, like those that occur especially during the rising of the dog star, directly warm the heart itself through inhalation. Moreover, since they surround the body, they make all of it warm. In particular, the arteries, since these attract something from the substance of the air that surrounds us. Though all these things, the heart is necessarily affected. 
becoming excessively hot and first and foremost reaching a feverish state, which it transmits through the whole body. And Galen had that right. He dissected a bunch of animals and he said, man, this thing that I'm going to call a heart, it, it pushes blood somehow through magical walls that let blood go through to different parts of the body. But he never desecrated human corpses like later scientists. So, he, I mean, he he kind of set back, you know, the medical theory with his ineptitudes and the bastard trying to bring science into this world. Everything's perfectly explained by gods. Get with the times. In pestilential constitutions, the inhalation of air is the most important cause. For if the fever is sometimes caused by the humors in the body that are susceptible to causing putrefaction, when the living being receives a slight impetus from the ambient air for the beginning of the fever, <clears throat> Jesus Christ, my throat. Most often, it is following inhalation that the fever starts. Inhalation of the surrounding air, which is polluted by putrefied odors, you know, the origin of putrefaction is either a massive cadavers hidden beneath the ground, because that's everywhere, you know, that haven't been cremated, got to burn those bastards. And then, as normally happens during combat, you know, when you're stabbing somebody, much warmth, much heat, uh, much bad smells, you know, people dying in the field and such, or fumes from swamps or lakes during the summer. Man, what a time to be alive. In the case of an epidemic disease, this is the advice that should be given to people. Do not change your regimen. Keep doing the things that you're doing, since this is not the cause of the disease. But rather see to it that the body is extremely thinned and weakened by removing food and drink from the habitual regimen little by little. By contrast, as far as the air is concerned, here are the precautions to take. Breathe in as little air as possible, and as little contaminated air as possible as well. For this, remove the patient from the areas contaminated with the disease. Then follow a weight loss here, since this is the best way of avoiding the need to breathe frequently. So is death. I don't recommend dying as a cure for your miasmas, miasms sickness um i also bad idea in the whole you know don't change your regimen thing right we know that just really interesting this whole history of the miasma theory and the science and pseudoscience that kind of surrounds it love it but a long time after the miasma theory was thought of you know in the 6th century BC by those Greek philosophers. We had this theory by Girolamo Forcastro in the medieval period, uh, during the medieval period. In this time, epidemic disease was associated in people's minds with things like comets and eclipses and earthquakes or major astrological disturbances that charged the air with poisonous vapors known as miasmas. That's right. That eclipse up in the sky is causing the Earth to smell bad. Um, so we're all going to get sick. Mm -hmm. Just like that. 
during this time and basically since Galen and Hippocrates, the miasma theory was pretty much the dominant theory, the dominant way people thought that other people got sick. And maybe it was because of people's observation that the epidemics and mainly the plague tended to occur during the hot summer months where the air in the cities was humid and filled with the odors of garbage, decomposing animals and human waste. Man, fucking savages just shitting all over their neighbor's lawn, which is totally what I would have done if I was medieval Europe and if I had choice of dropping my shit in my lawn or dropping my shit outside of the hovel in my neighbor's lawn, I'm going to do that. I'm going to kill their grass over there. Fuck them and their green grass. But yeah, it's just comets and earthquakes, eclipses, all of those things. Um, you know, it's really interesting to me that most of this and, and most of these thoughts really took place at a time where there wasn't as much civilized population in the northern regions, like in the northern, like farther northern hemisphere, right? Now we know that the flu season, November through March, basically, it's cold as fuck. I live in Wisconsin. I am freezing my balls off all the time when I am outside in the winter. And the other thing that happens, other than me freezing my balls off and people driving like idiots, is people are sick with the flu. And it has nothing to do with being warm. They just needed to come live here for a little while to realize that, you know. They were a little late on murdering the inhabitants of the the North Americas by a few, by a millennia and a half, but get with the program. All right, I'm back. Back to why I'm here. All right. This guy's name is the Girolamo of Rocastro, and he lived during the 16th century, 1500s. Specifically, if you must know, 1478 to 1553. This dude was a poet, a physician, and a mathematician. So he was a smart guy in a time when there were a lot of stupid people. And he attempted to analyze the concept of contagion and infection. You know, your pre-germ theory epidemiologist here. In his major clinical work on contagion, contagious diseases, and their cure, it was published in 1546, Procasero distinguished three forms of contagion and speculated that infections are caused by transferable seed-like beings. I like that, beings. Mm, mysterious. Seminaria, or germs, uh, which could cause infection. And having observed the epidemics of syphilis, plague, and typhus that devastated Italy during the 16th century, Castro introduced his own theory of disease, the contagious theory. According to his writings, some diseases such as syphilis and gonorrhea were only transmitted by direct contact. Hmm. Other diseases were transmitted by fomites in clothing that had been in contact with the sick and in the third category, he placed diseases such as tuberculosis and smallpox, which was capable of infecting people at a distance. Through the air, for instance. For Castro, germs are conceived not as 
like microorganisms, but as chemical substances liable to evaporation and atmospheric diffusion. And each disease was specific and had its specific germ. The germ propagated in the tissue of the infected host and caused disease by setting up chemical putrefactive changes in those tissues. In order to in order a germ to produce infection, it must find a corresponding analogy in the tissues of the host. By George, this man was on to something. But this isn't an episode on smart people. No way, no how. This is an episode on shit, bad smells, garbage, piss, and other unholy smells. Yeah, this guy was on, like, this This makes sense. He, he had proof. He's like, these people came in contact with each other, and now they have gonorrhea. This sick person let this other sick person touch their clothing, and now they are also sick. That wasn't good enough for people. They much preferred to believe, again, very religious time in history, especially in Europe, that this earthquake or it's a it's been a little cold for you know the last few years maybe that's causing people to be sick you know or this the my neighbor shit that's in my lawn that asshole he just why can't he ever shit in his own lawn that's causing me to be sick so on and so forth that makes way more sense germs which brings me to this this episode on bad smells did you know, intelligent listeners, that London used to smell like feces wrapped in hot garbage, thrown in a pool of vomit, and washed down a plague river and heated to 100 degrees? That about sums up, I think, how it used to smell. But yeah, London used to smell horrible. They had a lot of people living there. I'll get to that later. Here's a quote. Uh from Professor H. Booth, writing in The Builder of July 1844. From inhaling the odor of beef, the butcher's wife obtains her obesity. That's a great quote. I, you know, I shouldn't say that too loud. I'm sure there are people that are going to catch on to that. They're going to be like, damn it, if I stop smelling so many goddamn donuts, maybe I wouldn't weigh 400 pounds. That's the trick. Stop smelling. Problem solved. I can go home now. Just kidding. Edwin Chadwick, report on the sanitary condition of the laboring population of Great Britain, published in 1842, argued for the improvement of house drainage to remove noxious smells from dwellings. And this is a time when dwellings, even in the, the, the relatively rich London, were single unit hovels, right? They, they didn't have many rooms. But it, the same year, uh, Sir Francis, Sir Francis Head, what a great name, a colonial governor who had served in Canada, reviewed Chadwick's report in the influential pages of the Quarterly Review. He applauded Chadwick's criticism of poor drainage and ventilation and in supporting the miasmic theory of disease propagation, added that some settlements in the Americas had been rendered dangerous by the plowing of virgin soil which had exposed decaying vegetable matter and the miasms that rose from it. Chadwick himself told the Parliament, Parliamentary Committee in 1846, All smell is, if it be intense, immediate acute disease, and eventually we may say that by depressing the system and rendering it susceptible to the action of other causes, all smell is disease. Smart men. 
uh, I shouldn't blame them, right? They're just going off of what they were told. Hmm. That explains a lot of human history. These convictions should not surprise us. In the mid-19th century, the air of cities seemed to be much fouler than their water. The hot, dry summer of 1858 reduced the Thames with its cargo of metropolitan sewage to a condition that the Times, the London Times, I think, called it the Great Stink. On the 18th of June, 1858, the newspaper recorded proceedings in Parliament. And I quote, the intense heat had driven our legislators from those portions of their buildings which overlook the river. A few members, bent upon investigating the matter to its very depth, ventured into the library, but they were instantaneously driven to retreat, each man with a handkerchief to his nose. It would be unseemly to vomit in such a case. Goldsworthy Gurney, an engineer who in installed the lighting and ventilation in the rebuilt Palace of Westminster, informed the speaker that he could no longer be responsible for the health of the house. The member of parliament who brought this news proceeded to describe interruptions to the court of Queen's Bench, where a surgeon had testified that because of the atmosphere, the air, it would be dangerous to the lives of the jurymen, counsel, and witnesses to remain. It would produce malaria and perhaps typhus fever. The implication was that the smell itself was dangerous, and the parliamentarians were alarmed. Really, as in throughout all of human history, things don't get fixed until it's a problem for the rich people. London didn't at this time have proper sewage solution in place. And the great stink of London in 1858, uh, it was so overpowering that, that the curtains in the commons were soaked in chloride of lime in this, an attempt to protect the sensitivities of the parliamentary members. It's no surprise that a bill was rushed through and became law in just about 18 days to provide money to construct a massive new sewer scheme for London and to build an embankment along the Thames in order to improve the flow of water and traffic. Yeah. That's it. We figured out how the little people can succeed. We just need to make our problems problems that the, the rich people have and then that's not going to work. I lied. Thankfully, the problem in London was solved because uh, at this time, there were more than 3 million people living in London in 1860, 1858-ish, right? 3 million. If those 3 million take a shit one time a day, uh, it comes out to approximately 381 million kilos of shit a year. Yeah. No wonder it smelled poorly in London. I did the dirty work for that, if you know what I mean. Well, now that's over, what's next? What else is miasma, miasma theory linked to in history other than the run-of-the-mill pestilence bad stuff? You know? How about witches? And this will come from Of Mice and Moisture, Rats, Witches, Miasma, and Early Modern Theories of Contagion, the author Lucinda Cole. William Austin's Epilomia, or Anatomy of, of Pestilence, offers a compendium of etiological theory. Lucretian, Aristotelian, and Galenic reframed for and resituated in a Christian worldview. The following poem discloses some of the ways in which rats plague bad air and witches 
were entangled in complex, often recursive analysis in which metaphysical and material explanations are both distinguished and conflated. This dude argues that the plague first appeared after the flood, while initially a sign of God's indignation, subsequent plagues can be perceived as endemic to a fallen world. After raising the Lucretian theory of plague seed, according to which the plague is thought to breed in pregnant or cloudy air, i.e. the miasma theory. Our Mother Earth, some reckon such a flat as pudding makes and never washes gut, eat carrion and digests not, then at last belches and blows us backward with the blast. That poem is insinuating that the earth eats dead things and then farts them back at us, which is a great poem. Um, and it also says that, it, that some people think that it's flat like pudding. This might be my new favorite poem, poem of all time. Back to witches. On the demon mania of witches in 1580, for example, Jean Baudin reports on four would-be witches in Constance whom peasants accuse of stirring up a storm that, in his words, ruined the fruit for four leagues around. Bowden, whose work, as James Sharp notes, was very influential, and especially among English writers, claims that Satan will often try to take credit for natural disasters, sometimes convincing his witches that they bring or drive away the plague and tempest and the famine, when he is simply accurately predicted a god-given storm very often however the witches are responsible and one must guard against them as one would the plague demonstrating the view that religious faith can mitigate or overcome all kinds of contagion including witchcraftery and Bowden argues for good spiritual husbandry you got to take care of our souls avoid them witches because witches smell bad they smell like rats because where there are rats there's disease because where there's rats and disease, there's bad smells. So because witches smell like rats, witches must also cultivate disease. I think that's the logic. For as long as blasphemies on the one hand and atheism on the other have credit, he warns, one must not hope to drive away evil spirits, nor plagues, nor wars, nor famine. Then in a revealing simile, Bowden equates witches with vermin, a category that includes toads, caterpillars, and flies. Note that it is possible to drive witches away completely without there always being some who are just like toads and grass snakes on the ground, spiders in houses could be a witch, caterpillars and flies in the air could be a witch, who are engendered by corruption, who attract the poison from the earth and the infection from the air i.e. miasma theory. But well-cultivated land, or purified air, how do you purify air in the... I mean, you make it smell good with things. Um, and cleared trees are not so subject to this infection, right? You gotta clear the space of the bad things. And if one lets the vermin multiply, oh no, it engenders corruption and infects everything. Our good friend, friend of the podcast, William Shakespeare, exploits the association between natural and spirit contagion in his story, Macbeth, drawing upon practical demonology and miasma theory to stage 
relationships among vermin, you know, imaginary ones, that is, you know, plague and witches. Shakespeare's tragedy was written and performed, as far as we can tell, sometime between 1605 and 1607, during the height of one of London's plague seasons. As F.P. Wilson notes, the language Ross uses to describe Beth Scotland could very well have been used to characterize plague-ridden London, where sighs and groans and shrieks that rend the air are made, not marked, and where violent sorrow seems a modern ecstasy, the dead man's knell is there scarce asked for who and good men live expire before the flowers in their caps, dying or ere they're sick. Thank you for that wonderful little tidbit, William Shakespeare. Also, I did go back and read Macbeth for this, and it's still just as good as it was then. Double bubble toil and trouble, people. What else is miasma theory linked to in the past? How about Jack the Bloody Fucking Ripper. And this comes from an article named A Phantom on the Slums Foul Air, Jack the Ripper and Miasma Theory by Darby Wood Walters. And it's fucking great. You should read it. But here are some, some things that I, I captured from it. Uh, there, there's quite a few, and enjoy. When Jack the Ripper gruesomely disemboweled and murdered prostitutes in 1888, Victorian newspaper journalists and their readers discussed his crimes in terms of epidemiology. Kind of seems a little bit more appropriate for a medical journal, but I'll get into that. Just days after the murdy, murder, murdy, murdy doesn't sound nearly as bad as murder. And in this case, murder her. I'm sorry, that was uncalled for. The murder of Annie Chapman, the alleged third victim of the Ripper. Could have been more. Never know. The Times said, We have long ago learnt that neglected organic refuse breeds pestilence. Can we doubt that neglected human refuse, as inevitability breeds crime, and that crime reproduces itself like germs in an infected atmosphere, and becomes at each successive cultivation more deadly, more bestial? and more absolutely unrestrained. By visualizing the crimes as germs in an infected atmosphere, the newspaper participated in an extended metaphor that began with the newspaper coverage of Jack the Ripper's first victim, one Polly Nichols, on August 31st, and persisted well after the last of his five victims, Mary Kelly, died on November 9th. Articles and editorials relied upon a discourse of infection and disease to conceptualize the origins and the methodology of the murder. Some even went so far as to envision the Whitechapel fiend himself as a deadly miasma. Depictions of the Ripper as a miasma appeared in a diverse range of daily and weekly periodicals, including the conservative Morning Post, the radical Reynolds newspaper, the left-leaning Pall Mall Gazette, and even the medical journal The Lancet. Such ubiquity of miasmic imagery across class, genre, and politics reveals a surprising preoccupation with the theory of disease that many by that time had considered defunct because the germ theory is a thing. But thanks to the late Victorian press, miasma, in this disguised form, 
lingers with us even today. The miasma theory is notable for its uncertainty about the origins of disease. The theory posits that disease resides in the ephemeral atmosphere, but also paradoxically in the constitution of the individual. Miasma poses the greatest threat to the lowest class and yet has a way of unpredictably rupturing class and domestic boundaries in a way that threatens the entire nation. Think about the plague. By using miasmic narrative forms and character and characteristics to describe the Ripper's murders, reporters were able to pathologize the killer and render him, like Miasma, an object of knowledge despite this apparent ephemerality and unknowability. And this mystery that can't be solved. Just like why people used to get sick. A little bit of history. In 1854, William Farr classified transmissible diseases into four groups, miasmatic, contagious, dietic, and parasitic. He defined the miasmatic as diffusible through air or water and producing fevers of two main types, those derived from the human body or animal matter. matter. While the contagious or anthetic introduced from without was communicated person to person by contact, puncture, or inoculation, During the middle of the century, when miasma theory reached peak popularity, both medical practitioners and the general public envisioned miasma as a shapeless and undetectable property of air in certain locations. The air over there is bad. Which somebody once said to a location near to where I was standing, and it made me sad. That's my attempt at a poem. Although... William Farr makes a clear distinction between the airborne transmission of miasmatic disease and the person-to-person transmission of contagious disease. Medical doctors began in the late 1850s to recognize that diseases often did not strictly adhere to those definitions. Public health workers referred to certain diseases as contagious miasmatic in order to explain spontaneous outbreaks of people getting sick, you know, from drinking shitty water, literally shitty water. Look up the cholera outbreaks in, in London. Vicious shit. Furthermore, in Victorian periodicals, they saw this gruesome, microscopic, miasmatic being. The public could articulate the terror of a seemingly invisible, deadly threat. Jack the Ripper, in this case, right? On September 28, 1888, the Ripper's first two murders... After the Ripper's first two murders, the set, the satirical magazine Punch published a cartoon, cartoon, cartoon that visually epitomized this threat that other periodicals had already begun to suggest, shown as an amorphous phantom floating through miasma or foul air. Jack the Ripper wields a knife while the verse below awkwardly warns, Bane is fleeing. You can't flee the air we breathe. Although, according to some Greek philosophers, if you make yourself really sick and don't eat much and try not to breathe so much, it's good. I wonder how many of those things they tried on themselves before saying to other people, or was it just a follow of logic? Who needs evidence when you can just say, these are the conclusions I make based on logic? Never mind. It makes sense then that the police posited that Jack the Ripper too might be identified by smell, 
that's interesting. Right, each person does have their own scent, but by October 14th, 1888, the police began to consider the possibility of tracking down the murderer using bloodhounds. That's smart. And it, it's there's a section titled Experiments with Bloodhounds, a phrase that combined the vocabulary of the medical laboratory methodology of the detective. Lloyds described the elaborate testing of two bloodhounds, Barnaby and Burgo, great names for bloodhounds, by Sir Charles Warren, the commissioner of police. As Neil Pemberton notes, the dogs were expected to introduce a new perceptual threshold and function as an instrument of detection by gathering otherwise imperceptible scent information about the culprit. That makes sense, right? Dogs have good noses. We know that. The trials were apparently promising enough that after Mary Jane Kelly's death, the bloodhounds were sent for, and great care was taken to block traffic around the crime scene in order to preserve the scent of the killer. Unfortunately, the dogs took off. But they believe, the police believe, that if they had kept on the trail, it would have been caught. Despite the lack of resolution to this part, in the Ripper narrative, newspaper reports established smell as the most promising if not the only means by which Jack could be detected, which is just really crazy to me. We, we talked about Chadwick earlier. If, as Chadwick suggested, all smell was disease, then Jack the Ripper was imagined with a scent to be unique and strong enough that hounds and or people could trace him through the teeming maze of London's odors with a strong disease. It's nuts. So the idea that you would know the person attacking you is Jack the Ripper because they smelled bad. Maybe emphatically of disease. It's just really fascinating. Uh, what a cool fucking story. Uh, I recommend reading the rest of it. As I mentioned the title earlier, I do implore, implore anyone interested in it to read the whole thing because it's pretty fucking cool. We now know what the miasma was. How about what miasms caused? The short answer, everything. If you became sick, miasma, the miasms caused it. Cancer, same thing. The flu, the plague, the common cold, demons in your blood. Whatever the fuck it was. And it was a little hot and it's probably a little smelly. So you got sick. You might just be asked, have you smelled anything foul recently upon visiting a physician? Because... It was before proper sewage systems, and people were just generally not as clean. Yeah, of course you smelled something terrible. Those damn miasms just fucking seeped into your body like farts in a hot shower. Miasma or miasms cause sickness. But how did you cure the sicknesses? I'm just going to run through a brief history of things because I'm awesome. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church effectively dominated what direction the medical world took post the Roman Empire. Any view different from the established Roman Catholic view was labeled as heresy and punished accordingly. Thank you, Roman Catholic Church, for stamping out anything that was remotely like science. The Roman Catholic Church stated that the illnesses were punishments from God. Of course they were. And those who were ill were so because they were sinners. Stop looking at your neighbor's wives. 
As people became obsessed with their souls, they neglected their bodies. Medicine became a matter of faith and prescriptions became prayers. Medicine became steeped in superstition. Ideas about the origin and cure of disease were based on factors such as destiny, sin, and heavenly influences. God likes me more than he likes you. You're sick as fuck. Therefore, therefore, in this period, there was no tradition of scientific medicine, and observations went hand in hand with spiritual and religious influences. Medicine during the Middle Ages was composed of a mixture of existing ideas from antiquity, like Galen, and spiritual influences. In the Middle Ages, the practice of medicine was still rooted in Greek tradition. The body was made up of four humors, yellow bile, phlegm, black bile, and blood. These were controlled by the four elements, fire, water, earth, and air. An imbalance of these humors caused disease, and the body could be purged of excess by bleeding, cupping, and leeching. Physicians were, however, trained in the art of diagnosis, which kind of surprised me, right? I knew a little bit about medicinal history in this in this period, but I, I hadn't realized this next part. So they were trained in the art of diagnosis. They did these things. They observed, they they observed the 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 feeling of the pulse and urine examination, including and not limited to tasting it. These were the tools of the doctor throughout the Middle Ages. Oh, your beady thingy inside you is moving irregularly. You must be sick. Your urine tastes a little earthy. Have you been exhuming bodies? They were often shown in manuscripts holding a urine flask up for inspection or feeling the pulse. First visiting patients, doctors would note their appearance. They would listen to their stories, ask if they smelled anything foul felt their pulses, and examined their urine. The urine was the most important, right? Because we that's how we got rid of the, the miasm. What? They could tell your sickness, your, your, you know, what was happening inside your body by the smell, taste, and look of your urine. I mean, it's not totally untrue, right? You can tell a lot of things from urine. I don't, I mean, maybe these guys were really talented urine tasters. But it was believed uh, at the same time that the moon had the greatest influence on fluids on Earth. And that it was the moon that had the ability to affect positively or negatively the four elements in the body. Yeah. The moon made you sick. Where the moon and planets were, a knowledge is important when making a diagnosis and deciding on a course of treatment. Physicians needed to know when to treat a patient and when not to. And the position of the planets determined it. The so-called zodiac chart also determined when bloodletting should be done, as it was believed by some that the moon and planets determined it as well. And if you were born under a certain astrological sign, you just might not have been given the time of day because, oh, you Capricorns are no good this time of the year. I don't want to go near you, you know. You, you reek of miasma. So funny. The oldest surviving English herbal manuscript, and I say that as a man in 2020 with the, the obviously the foreknowledge of uh, everybody before me, um, but it is fun to, to think back on it and, and imagine their opinion, thoughts on these matters, especially having been gone to what went for a school at this time. It's just interesting that this is the stuff that was taught for thousands of years. 
Vapor and herb baths were prescribed for all kinds of ailments. The book showed it was common to smoke the sick with fragrant woods and plants. Headache and aching joints were treated with sweet-smelling herbs such as rose, lavender, sage, and hay. A mixture of henbane and hemlock was applied to aching joints. Coriander was used to reduce fever. Stomach pains and sickness were treated with wormwood, mint, and balm. Lung problems were treated with medicine made of licorice and comfrey. Cough syrups and drinks were prescribed for chest and head colds and coughs. All of those things made sense. Wounds were cleaned with vinegar and was widely used as a cleansing agent as it was believed that it would kill disease. Mint was used in treating venom and wounds, and myrrh was used as an antiseptic on wounds. When you look at this, a common theme among this is the, the medicines listed is their ability to destroy and or mask the smell of something. Let me cover you and stick all of these smelly good things on you, inside you, around you, and we'll get rid of we'll get rid of this putrefaction. How did the people of the Middle Ages cope with such a horrible disease like the plague? There's no medical knowledge existed at the time to deal with the infection. Bacteria and contagion were unknown. Medical medieval doctors tended to blame a pestilent atmosphere, right? Mm caused either by planetary conjunction, oh yeah, those planets are in the wrong spot, or by earthquakes and volcanic eruptions, the earth farting, that had occurred before the disease appeared. Doctors tried every possible cure and prevention, and it didn't work. Physicians relied on crude and unsophisticated techniques, such as bleeding people and boil lancing, uh, practices very unsanitary and dangerous and superstitious practices such as burning aromatic herbs and bathing in rose water or vinegar. Some stress that olive oil, as an article of food, is fatal, and bathing is injurious. Others believe that the air had become stiff and had to be broken up by loud noises, so bells were rung, guns were fired, and birds were released to fly around rooms. That is the absolute best cure for the plague that I've ever heard. I think at this time, like if, if I had my choice, I would just find the loudest possible person to just like come in and scream at my room. Um, or I would do that to other people like this as a witch doctor. I'd be like, this, this is going to cure you. I have this guy. His name is Tom, and he's a really fucking loud screamer. So what's going to happen every like 10 minutes? Tom's going to come into your room and scream as loud as he can for as long as he can. And the more he screams, the better protected from this you're going to be. I'm sure that didn't always work out great for Tom. You know what? Fuck it. My next episode of History's Dirty Shorts will be inspired by this one, where I search historical records and find the weirdest fucking disease and medical problems that I possibly, that I possibly can. That sounds like fun. Also, I'm still working on Theodora, and that should be the next episode to be released. As always with me, I can never seem to just find the time to get that part of it done. But these historical short episodes don't require nearly as much research, though they are a joy to work on, and I hope to continue down the path of slavery, oppression, and pestilence in the future. For now, this has been my latest episode of History Uncensored, and if you haven't done so already, rate me on Apple Podcasts and follow me on Twitter at Seth the Number Four Nerds, Seth Four Nerds, 
if you're interested in talking, in, in me talking about being a dad and my life, check out my other new podcast called Dads and D-Pads. You can find that anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or just want to talk, email me at my new email address, historyu, history, the letter U, dot pod at gmail.com, or send me a DM on Twitter. If you want to cover a specific topic, shoot me an email, and I could do a listener-suggested episode, which I think would be fun, because I'm always interested to hear what you guys think. Anyway, thank you guys, as always, for listening to me talk about stuff. And if we look back, history remembers. Thank heaven the crisis, the danger is past, and the lingering illness is over at last, and the fever called living is conquered at last. Sadly, I know I am shorn of my strength, and no muscle I move as I lie at full length, but no matter, I feel I am better at length. And I rest so composedly now in my bed that any beholder might fancy me dead, might start at beholding me, thinking me dead. The moaning and groaning, the sighing and sobbing are quieted now with that horrible throbbing at heart. The horrible, horrible throbbing, the sickness, the nausea, the pitiless pain have ceased with the fever that maddened my brain, with the fever called living that burned in my brain. And oh, of all tortures that torture the worst has abated, the terrible torture of thirst for naphthalene river of passion accursed, I have drunk of a water that quenches all thirst, of a water that flows with a lullaby sound, from a spring but a very few feet underground, from a cavern not very far down underground. And ah, let it never be foolishly said that my room it is gloomy and narrow my bed, for man never slept in a different bed, and to sleep you must slumber in such a bed. My tantalized spirit here blandly reposes, forgetting or never regretting its roses, its old agitations of myrtles and roses, for now while so quietly lying it fancies a holier odor, about it of pansies a rosemary odor, commingled with pansies, with rue and the beautiful Puritan pansies. And so it lies happily, bathing in many a dream of the truth, and the beauty of Annie drowned in a bath of the tresses of Annie. She tenderly kissed me, she fondly caressed, and then I fell gently to sleep on her breast, deeply to sleep from the heaven of her breast. When the light was extinguished, she covered me warm. She prayed to the angels to keep me from harm, to the queen of the angels to shield me from harm. And I lie so composedly now in my bed that you fancy me dead, and I rest so contentedly now in my bed with her love at my breast that you fancy me dead that you shudder to look at me, thinking me dead, but my heart it is brighter than all of the many stars in the sky, for it sparkles with Annie, it glows with the light of the love of my Annie, with the thought of the light of the eyes of my Annie. A poem by Edgar Allan Poe.